0: Prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are our God, a God that is altogether just and righteous, the God of grace and mercy, who cares for us and loves us with an infinite amount of love. And you have revealed in your word the things that we need in order to live a life that is pleasing in your sight. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate on the message this morning so we can do just that. For we pray it in Christ's name, Amen. We're continuing in our what may be a series. I don't know how long it's going to last. It has to do with Christians and government in Romans 13. I've presented three basic viewpoints so far. The first one is the idea that government is all-powerful and you are to obey and submit to everything that comes from government. The second one has to do with recognizing that government has limited power, and you are biblically right to resist when it is issues dealing with faith. In other words, when the government uh, commands you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, then you have the right to resist. The third viewpoint is the one that we started last Sunday, and that is that idea that government is limited in the scope of its authority and that you are biblically right to resist in matters of faith and freedom. Uh, we went through some of the parts of the Declaration of Independence and saw how they square with this last viewpoint. And I'm going to pick up the study today. We're pretty close to where we ended last time. Now, the notes are not as large as they normally are because I just noticed when I brought it up on the screen, the 20 font had not been updated to the to today. So uh, I apologize for that. But I hope that you can see that. If you if you can't see it, then we will make the notes available to you. I'm going to go slower today. I've had people say, slow down, because there are uh, several quotes, and quotes are kind of hard. They're kind of like a poem or something. You've got to go slow enough to really get it. And these quotes are very important. So I'm going to go slower today, and we're, you'll notice... At least I think you can probably see this. We have a star right here. I don't put stars very often. So if there's a star, it means, whoa, we better really look at this one. So we begin here. There's a very common mistake that many people make when they consider Romans 13, 1 through 7. They fail to recognize that those verses come from the perspective of a government operating as a minister of God for good and people's responsibility to submit to it. That is the context of Romans 13, 1 through 7. And when the, when the government is operating as a minister of God for good, we as believers are responsible to submit to it. However, to apply... The submission of those verses to a government that has become tyrannical and a minister of Satan for evil is a gross misapplication. This is, this is something that so many people do. They go to Romans 13, they go through these verses, and they say, See, you're supposed to submit. But they forget about or don't realize that it is referring to a government that is operating properly properly. As a minister of God, I gave this quote last time. Oh, no, excuse me. This is a new quote. This is one reason I started here, because I found some more quotes. I'm constantly uh, upgrading this. This is this came from the, an article called The Crisis by Thomas Paine, December the 23rd, 1776. And he says, my own line of reasoning is to to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light. Not all the treasures of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an an offensive war for I think-it murder. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying he is not supporting revolution. That is an aggressive movement. ...against an established authority, and he says that he is not... ...nothing could even induce him to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief breaks into my house, burns and destroys my property, and kills or threatens to kill me, or those that are in it, and to bind me with all cases whatsoever to his absolute will am i to suffer it that portion there that says and am i to be uh, to bind me in all cases whatsoever that was a phrase from king george to the colonies and this was his intent that's why he in- inserted that he says am i to suffer it what signifies it to me whether he who does it is a king or a common man, my countrymen or or not my countrymen, whether it be done by an individual villain or an army of them, if we reason to the root of things, we shall find no difference. Neither can any just cause be assigned why we should punish in one case and pardon in the other. What he's saying there is crime is crime. Those who would take your freedom are those who are not ministers of God. And he said, I had said earlier, I think it's earlier, maybe I said it next, that it doesn't matter whether it's a criminal on the street or a criminal in office, it's still a crime. And he is addressing this and saying essentially that. Uh, the next phrase, uh, the next paragraph I've already given to you has to do with the idea of, well, the way to take care of the criminals is to vote them out of office. And I presented to you the idea today that so many people, when they go to the polls, are vo- voting for the lesser of two evils. And they know it. And what do you get when you vote for the lesser of two evils? More evil. Right. Then, uh, this is a new thing that I added here, Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So, we're getting the instruction as to how we make choices of those who are going to have rule over us. People do not choose their leaders these days by the qualities given above. How many politicians running for office fear God, are men of truth, and hate dishonest game? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a pretty small percentage. Unfortunately today, our political system, when people go to vote, they go and vote not because of what the Bible has outlined for us as to make judgments. We hear today that it's 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 a person that doesn't have character. It really doesn't matter. Uh, people vote for people sometimes who are the best looking. And you may think, ah, uh, no, not really. If you have an ugly face, you might as well stay out of politics no matter what you stand for, what your character is, you have to have a a pleasing personality. Usually you're charismatic, but it gets even more offensive than that because today people have realized that they can vote for the candidate that is going to promise them the best spot at the government trough. What that means is, is that they are buying votes with taxpayers' money. They will promise the constituency, the moon, in order to get elected. And that's why people many times uh, vote for the candidate, of, at least the candidate of their choice is the one that they feel is going to give them the biggest government handout. Now, I'm telling you the truth. This might not go down easy. It might not be palatable. But it's certainly, if people were voting according to this standard, we wouldn't have the government that we have today. And if voting was the was the solution, the only solution, I should say, then we wouldn't be in the fix that we are today. How has it worked for us over the past 50 years? The reason, and I'm, please, I am not trying to discourage anyone from voting. I'm not trying to have you vote for any particular candidate. Uh, I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just trying to present it as we see that, The Bible gives the standard for voting or choosing leaders, and we haven't used it, and we're paying the price. Furthermore, the candidates, for the most part, the great majority of them, don't fit any of those standards anyway. I have a quote here then from uh, uh, what our political leaders and uh, so forth, they play lip service uh, to, they all swear an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, and then they very quickly turn around and forget about that and do what is politically expedient. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America and the Bill of Rights are safeguards we have against our own government enslaving us. That's why they're there. When the government is no longer bound by the chains of the Constitution, there is tyranny. What separates this country from other countries? I mean, we have great natural resources, but there are other countries that have great natural resources. We have something unique in this country, and it is outlined, it is given in these documents. We recognize that our rights come from God, and they're not given by a government that can t- that can give you certain privileges and then withdraw them at will, this is the great distinction that we have, and it's bound up in these documents. And then you remember Thomas Jefferson's quote in Questions of Power: "Then let no one be heard, uh, nothing be heard of uh, confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution." Then there was a minister John, uh, uh, minister, John Tucker of Newberry, Massachusetts. And in a sermon of 1771, he said the following. Submission is due to all constitutional laws. Unlimited submission, however, is not due, meaning owed, to the government in a free state. There are certain boundaries beyond which submission cannot be justly required, nor is there for due, meaning required. Nor, nor is the submission required. You see, uh, what I've done, and I've got a lot of quotes in, this, in my paper here, and I've tried to reduce it, but there are so many. People don't realize that at the turn of the century, well, actually, right before the uh, 1800s, you had a lot of upheaval going on. And the ministers, that would be the pastors of that era, were the ones that were speaking out, giving the biblical perspective with regards to Christians and freedom. The British hated them above all. They were called the Black Regiment. It's not that they were colored. It was that they wore long black robes. And across the board, they were making all types of quotes. I could give you 50 quotes that are similar to this one, but you can only take so many, so I just kind of pick and choose. But when the British came to the colonies, the first thing they tried to do is capture and take away the black regiment because the people were informed what their uh, relationship with the government is according to the Bible, and they didn't want that to go go out. And, they, of course, the the ministers had the, the worst treatment, the worst uh, torture, and so forth. So that was from uh, Minister John Tucker. Only foolish or naive think that kings or government will restrain themselves. And when the people allow government officials to routinely break their oaths of office without holding them accountable, freedom is lost. It's just natural. It's part of human nature. It's part of having a fallen nature. We call it the old sin nature, that if you have power, your whole idea is to not only maintain that power at all costs, but also uh, usurp more power. And here's a quote from uh, Minister Jonathan Matthew of Boston, It was in a sermon in 1766, and he said, quote, History affords no example of any nation, country, or people long free who did not take some care of themselves and endeavor to guard and secure their own liberties. Power is of a grasping, encroaching nature and operating according to mere will whenever it meets with no balance, check, control, or opposition of any kind. That's just saying what I said a moment ago a little uh, in, in more formal terms. In other words, people who have power are going to try to abuse it sooner or later if they're not held in check by someone. Do you see this next star here? Second star. So far, we've only had two stars. This is the second one. But how can Christians hold government officials accountable if they believe the Bible requires them to submit to governmental tyranny? That's the question. See, I have a lot of... You know, up to this point, I've asked 62 questions. From the time that I started this paper to here, I've already asked 62 questions. and There's a lot more coming. And the idea is to is to help you to think through these issues. And so now I have some quotes, but this is this is this is huge because if we are obliged by the scriptures that we must abide tyranny and not resist it in matters of freedom, then who is going to hold the powers at bay? Remember, we already gave you the quote. Uh, Power corrupts, and this was by Lord Acton. He said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So who is to hold them at bay? Are the unbelievers, the non-Christians, to take the load of holding the power at bay? Are they, take, are they to take the full weight because Christians are not to do it? Here are some quotes for you. This is by, again... Thomas Paine, an article in The Crisis, January 13, 1777. He said, "...he that rebels against reason is the real rebel. But he that, in defense of reason, rebels against tyranny has a better title to defender of the faith than George III. Now. I'll give you a little explanation about this. Of course, he's talking about King George III of England. And one of the titles given to King George III was Defender of the Faith. And all Thomas Paine is saying is that title really is more apropos when people rebel against tyranny. That's essentially what he's saying. The next quote is from Life, Liberty, and Property by Charles A. Weissman. He says, "...as tyranny, oppression, and usurpation become more commonplace in America and throughout the world, one begins to see a war being silently yet diligently waged against God, the Bible, and Christianity." Like the political wars against rights, the religious war is waged by our enemy with the aims of destroying the protections that guard the rights of life, liberty, and property, as Samuel Adams stated in 1776. Now, uh, what I have following is just a a quick quote from uh, Samuel Adams. But what he's saying is there is a war being waged silently against the Bible and Christianity, and that war is trying to destroy the protections that guard the right of life, liberty, and property. Here is the quote that he was referring to by Samuel Adams. He says, and this this quote was made... In, uh, well, it, it, it was found in the writings of Samuel Adams by H. Cushing in 1904. And this is what he said. I fully agree in opinion with the celebrated author that freedom or slavery will prevail in a country according as the disposition and manners of the people render them fit for one or the other. Now, what's hard when, when I'm giving you these quotes they had a vocabulary that is so superior to ours. And so you're, you're, you're hearing it, and it's better if you can see it, but you're trying to follow it. That's why I have to slow down, because it takes time kind of to register it into the modern parlance that we know today. What he's essentially saying here is that with regards to issues of freedom or slavery, one, one of the two is going to prevail according to whether the... the the uh, people uh, are going to see, see it fit for whether slavery or whether it's for freedom. Now, he continues and says, And I have long been convinced that our enemies have made it an object to eradicate from the minds of the people a general sense of true religion and virtue in hopes thereby the more easily to carry their point of enslaving them. What he's saying here is that this, what the the writer above said, this silent war being waged, is to eradicate from the minds of the people a general sense of true religion and virtue. We might say they're trying to dumb us down by the constant barrage of propaganda on and on and on and on that it's wrong to stand up for your rights and that type of thing and for the point of enslaving them. One more quote. I know these might be painful for you, but I'm trying to make them as palatable as possible because they're huge in their importance. The next one is by uh, Charles Weissman again, Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of uh, and, and Property. And he says, quote, We are compelled to ask, how is it that so much corruption unlawfulness, evil acts, and government encroachment upon individual rights came about in the land. The old common law, along with the rights of life, liberty, and property, have eroded away, listen to this, because the religion of the people has eroded away. Rightly said. Nearly all of those who have Acquired power of office, use it unethically or unlawfully for their own aggrandizement and to remain in power. They have learned how to manipulate the system. Now, this is just something, and I believe me, I am not going to linger here. But there were, there are some who think, well, I don't see the big problem. Everything seems fine to me. And what I'm trying to show in this, these few very brief things, because I'm not going to make this a diatribe against the woes that we have in our nation because they are many and you're probably familiar with them. But these are just basic fundamental little tidbits for you to understand that uh, the condition that we're in. The first bullet here says, Congress exempts themselves from the massive regulations and law it it forces on the people. And where is my, y'all excuse me just a minute. I thought I got this out, but I didn't. I have something about uh, regulation here that um, you might find interesting. Now, Congress exempts themselves from the regulations they put on us. This is a quote from uh, Cicero. The ancient Roman statesman Cicero maintained, this is this quote, free societies are defined by the existence of a relatively small number of clear, easily understood laws. He's saying that that's what defines a free society. That is, a relatively small number of clear, easily understood laws. The latest law, or the latest uh, one of the latest laws that was passed by Congress is called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Now, they always give them these wonderful names. Some people know this as Obamacare. Um, it's over 900 pages long. 900 pages. I don't know how long the, our congressman had to deliberate over that and to look at it and thoroughly study it. You give me 900 pages of fine print, much of it in legalese, meaning it's um, kind of hard to understand, and you better give me a couple of months, probably just to read it. When government distorts incentives, meaning through regulation, the invisible hand can become a fist. This was from the an article called Government Regulation, Not Free Market. And this was in the Christian Science Monitor, November 22, 08. This next quote is from America's Engineered Decline by William Norman Grigg. He says, Each year, literally thousands of new regulations are emitted by the EPA, the DOT, the DOA, the HUD, the OSHA, OSHA, and the whole alphabet soup. And the regulatory leviathan grows, as it grows, it increasingly sucks up revenue, resources, and manpower that otherwise would be invested in productive pursuits. The Federal Register, do you all know what the Federal Register is? The Federal Federal Register is that organization that compiles regulations issued every single day by the federal federal regulatory agencies, and it, and it expanded, that is, the regulations in 2003, which was the latest date I could get figures, to 75,606 pages. This was in one year. It should be noted that the federal register is formatted, in other words, it's talking about if you went to the Federal Register, and you're looking at these pages, of which there were 75,606 in 2003. They are formatted in a double column. They have double column pages with small type, and each page is generated by the executive branch bureaucrats who, whose pronouncements supposedly have the force of law. And I got this from uh, uh, William Normans Gregg, uh, America's engineered decline. The estimated cost of regulatory compliance then, in 2003, was $860 billion. That was for 2003. Here now, we're, what, seven years past that? I shudder to think what it is now. This last... um, quote I have on this is by The Law, the classic blueprint for a just society by Frederick de He says, quote, The single greatest threat to liberty is government. Over the course of a century and a half, we have created more than 50,000 laws. Most of them permit the state to in- initiate violence against those who have not initiated violence against others. In each case, the person who resolutely demands and defends his God-given right to be left alone, can ultimately suffer death at the hands of our government. And I'm sorry, I don't have the date on on that quote. So all I'm, I could say a lot more about this, but suffice it to say that Congress exempts themselves from the laws that they give others. Another really great example is the fact that We probably, all of you, or maybe most of you, have, uh, whether you like it or not, have been under Social Security. That is the retirement that Congress has decided for the people. Do the congressmen, do they have Social Security? No. They have what's called a golden parachute. They have voted in themselves where, uh, well, you know the whole deal. It's just that... They exempt themselves from what they put on us. The second one, each new Congress refuses to be bound by the enactments of the previous Congress. One good illustration of this: y'all remember Phil Graham, that was from Texas, and he had a bill, and it passed that uh, it was going to be on a budget. The whole idea was that you cannot have this deficit spending, and we're going to have to. The government is going to have to uh, live within its means. I'm just paraphrasing, but the, and it was the bill, and it passed. But you know what happened to the next when the next Congress came along? It was completely ignored because well, they're not bound by a previous Congress. That happens quite a bit. Uh, the next one, Congress has unconstitutionally transferred its responsibility over our economy to a private corporation called the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is a private corporation owned by, for the most part that we know, um, foreigners. It was passed December the 23rd, 1913, two days before Christmas when everyone was gone and there was a handful of congressmen that that, uh, were responsible for passing this. On all of these, I could spend a long time explaining how absolutely uh, devastating these things are. Our president can decide at any time to thrust our country into war because those in Congress refuse to insist that they make a declaration of war before our soldiers are sent into harm's way, which, by the way, is demanded by our Constitution. There hasn't been a uh, declaration of war since World War II. So I'm not picking on any president. That's not what it's about. I'm just trying to demonstrate that what... Keeps us from being under tyranny is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And when that's gone, well, we have what we have today. A president can decide, well, we're going over here. We're going to go to war over here. And the Congress allows that to take place. And the people don't hold the Congress accountable. Evidently, following the Constitution isn't politically expedient anymore. Some of you are looking at, looking, looking at me like you're angry. I hope that it's not at me. I hope it's, you understand that I'm just reading to you the facts. Don't get mad at me. Currently, congressional spending is... Oh, I didn't, I didn't read this next little line here. What are the people to do when the separation of power has broken down and all three branches of the government are out of control? And if you think that things are not out of control, I think you're maybe not quite up to speed. Currently, congressional spending spending is out of control. The national debt, at least that they admit to, is $13 trillion. That is a number that's so large we can't even begin to understand what it is. But this, this will give you some idea. Not only is that the debt, but the debt increases by right at $4 billion a day. Every day, this country goes $4 billion more in debt. I think they said, I, I saw one article that said that if they broke that down for the taxpayers, if in other words, if the taxpayers all got together and said, well, let's just pay this, this off. Every individual taxpayer would have to cough up over $100,000 a piece. I don't think the taxpayers have that kind of money, do you? That was the the congressional. The executive branch uh, issues executive orders, which have the force of law, and you don't see executive orders in the Constitution. Signing statements. Do you all know what signing statements are? Signing statements... Uh, is a relatively new phenomenon. The way our government is designed is when the Congress comes up with a bill and and they pass a bill, they send it to the President, and the President either signs it or he vetoes it. He doesn't sign it. And if it's signed, it becomes law. If he doesn't sign it, then it goes back into the uh, Senate and the House and they have to come up with enough votes to override his veto. But what what is the fashionable thing today is when a bill goes to the president, he will say, hmm, uh, I don't understand this this way. This is the way I see it. And he will write in something there or he will just kind of cross out and amend the bill. Well, what does that do? That kills the separation of power. It's totally unconstitutional, but it goes on all the time. Most people aren't aware of it. Also, we have... Uh, appointment of czars. I don't like the name czar anyway. Actually comes from Caesar, but I think of Russia when I think of czars. And czars have wielded a tremendous amount of power and authority. There's no place in the Constitution that says that we are to have czars. There's many more things I could say, but this is just a, a, a thumbnail idea. The judicial branch is also out of control. They're legislating from the bench. What the judicial system is supposed to do is take what, the laws that are passed and and to administer them appropriately, interpret, if you will, but not to legislate. Here's something that people don't realize too much. The innocent plea has changed to non-guilty. If you're charged of a crime today and you say, How do you plead and you say innocent? They say, well, there's no such thing as an innocent plea anymore. It's not guilty. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is if you're innocent, then you're innocent and they must prove that you're guilty. When you say not guilty, you have to prove that you're not guilty. That's the way it works today. And yet, uh, you know, same-sex marriage. We have... uh, The idea that this is even an issue that we have to struggle with in this country is an indictment against the people, the system, and it stinks as far as God is concerned. We have, for instance, in in, uh, California, they come up with propositions all the time. I can't remember the exact number of the proposition. I think it was Proposition 6 or 9. This was several years ago. And it was the largest uh, assertment of, of... or an agreement of the populace on record. They all, something like 85 or 90% of the people said they no longer want to pay for illegal aliens for their education, for their health care, and all the things that they... It was, it was breaking the, the state. And yet, one federal judge says, no, this is unconstitutional, and, it, and the will of the people, was, was it was smashed. I mean, that's... I'll just go on. I'm just trying to give you a few ideas of why it's necessary for you to understand what you should do as a Christian. What are Christians to do when the state takes away their children because they spank them? And that happens every day in this country. In fact, some of you remember, it was a number of years ago, uh, I had some kind of correspondence from a church. It was a black church, and they were soliciting prayers because um, the government had come in and taken about, a third of the children from their parents in that church because they spanked the, the, the children. And the, the church uh, said that they, they took them in, I don't know if they were in or homes for a while, and then they, they, the, the, they came, the government officials came and said, told the church, they said, if you promise not to spank them, then we'll give you your children back. And you know what the, the church leader said to them? They said, we shall obey God rather than man. And we will not stop spanking our children. That happened just in recent times. The the fact that people, because they wear a badge or because they have a a uniform or whatever it might be, uh, 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 I'm talking about child protective services, these type of things, can come into a person's home and say, we're here to take your children. You say, why? Well, someone has alleged that you're abusing them. Where's the evidence? Unsubstantiated uh, accusation, and they're still taking the children away from the parents into a foster care system that is, uh, so let's say, at least can be dangerous, is a vicious evil. It wasn't that long ago, do you remember? Uh, there was a religious organization that someone, it was come to find out it was an unsubstantiated um, accusation from a person out of state that there were uh, youngsters in that, in that religious group that were being uh, abused in some fashion. And the state of Texas went in and took hundreds of children forcefully away from their parents. And as the judicial system ground on, a higher judge said that that was absolutely reprehensible and give the children back. And even then, the judge that was responsible, that made the decision to take the children in the first place, didn't even listen to the higher appellate court and made the the, uh, parents uh, promise all of these things about visitation and all these other things. Well, uh, again, I have to... I'm just giving you ideas here that we are finding abuses... What are people to do when they carry a weapon to protect themselves and their family, but are fined or jailed because they didn't have the government permissions to do so? This is, um, there are literally thousands of gun laws on the books. And I don't even, a lot of time, even the officials don't know uh, properly how to administer these things. But I do know one thing. I know that we have what's called the Second Amendment. It happens to fall in what's known as the highest law of the land, which is the Constitution. And when a person, when you go on a trip, you may be going somewhere that uh, you never know what's going to happen if you break down. There are criminals all around on the highways and so forth. And yet today people are deciding not to, to take a weapon to protect themselves because they're more afraid of the government than they are of the criminals. And I'm saying that's wrong. That is not right. What are they, what are people to do if the government passes a law that prohibits the ownership of firearms? It hasn't come to that yet. How important is this issue, by the way? It's the spark that started the first war of independence. In Lexington, the British marched to take away the weapons and the powder of the colonists. And the colonists met them on the square and said, no, we're not We're not going to to fire upon you, but you're not taking our means of defense. And you know, that's the shot heard round the world. There was a, a, a shot fired by the British and, Finally, there was return fire and there were several uh, killed. And then the British left there. I think uh, I had also um, a paper on that. It, it was in April 19th, uh, 1776, uh, right, right in there. Anyway, um, they left there and then went to Concord. And when they got to Concord, they found the same thing. And this time it was a minister that stood with the people and said no you 're not going to take our means of defense and there was another skirmish there, certain ones uh, died, but the British paid a very heavy price because by the time they got back where they came from the the colonists had all got word uh, they met them along the sides, and the British were used to to fighting in big open spaces, marching as armies and they were picked off uh, by the uh, i, I don 't remember the exact uh, I I hate it when I have a paper, and I don't want to go digging through it right now. I just didn't get it out before now. But it was uh, the, the British lost four times what the colonists lost. Anyway, it's a very important issue. When people become Christians, do they forfeit their right to be free? Do they forfeit their right to protect themselves and their children from anyone who would harm them, rob them, or endanger them? Does God deny them the right to resist these evils because they are a matter of freedom rather than faith? Here's a quote from The Divine Right of Kings. This was given in 1914. Many early English legal scholars, such as John Locke, had a profound impact on American thought. Locke claimed that the Word of God as fundamental law, which is to be utilized as a rule of righteousness to influence our lives, as a concrete means of, quote, checking arbitrary government. We rightly honor men and women who are willing to give their lives in order to protect our freedom from other countries that would try to harm us or enslave us. But these same men and women are often scorned by Christians if they try to protect their freedom from the tyranny of their own government. And why is that? In some cases, it's because of a misrepresentation or a misinterpretation of Romans 13. I bet you didn't think we were going to get here. The Scriptures. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Don't we always have to go to God's Word to find out what we are to do? I'm very tempted to stop right now because (laughs) uh, the time is just about out. But I'm afraid if I did, um, I might not get out of this place. I don't know. Anyhow, we'll at least look at the first verse, just a, a, a little a glimpse at it anyway. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Now, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, are not the only place in the Bible that gives us direction with regards to our relationship to civil government, but it's probably the one that is most often uh, gone to because it gives more detail than the others. I'm not going to leave out the others. I'll go there also. But let's look at least the first verse. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Let's take a look at the first sentence. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities. Every person, no matter what his or her position in life may be, is answerable to authority. You got that? I don't care if you're the president of the United States. I don't care if you're the sultan, if you are a sheik whether you're a king, I don't care who you are, every person on this earth is answerable to an authority that is higher than himself. God is the ultimate authority, and no legitimate authority exists apart from him. Now, cue on that one for a moment. God is the highest authority, the ultimate authority, and there is no legitimate authority that exists apart from him. Now other scriptures deal with the authority of God, the, the authority God has delegated in other areas such as marriage, the family and the church. Romans 13 is just dealing with the authority in the civil realm, but it's not the only place in the Bible that authority is dealt with in other areas. For instance, we could go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, has authority as regards to the marriage, the husband being the authority in marriage. We could go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, and talk about the authority in the church, in the church age. The pastor-teacher is the highest authority in the church. It didn't used to be that way. Pre-canon period, we had apostles, and they were over several churches. So we're just dealing with authority right now in the civil realm. It's not to be abolished or or any way thought, thinking that it's the only place that we have authority dealt with. This verse deals with the general principle regarding authority in the civil realm. God has delegated certain limited authority over mankind in order to maintain and preserve the human race. Has to be authority. If there was no authority, it would be anarchy. It would be chaos. So God has delegated a certain limited authority. This is a quote from D. A. Carson, the New Bible Commentary, and he says, "Perhaps the best uh, solution then is to view." And he's talking about Romans thirteen one through seven as a general statement about how the Christian should relate to government, with the with exceptions to this advice. Assumed, but not spelled out here. One more thing here. The next sentence says, "...for there is no authority except from God." No one has authority from himself, since all legitimate authority has been delegated by God. When one assumes authority that is not from God then it is counterfeit, illegitimate, and therefore requires no respect or submission. What does it say? For there is no authority except from God. The concept is similar to the structure of authority in our country. The United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights were instituted to be the supreme law of the land, and any code, rule, regulation or statute that is contrary to the Constitution is counterfeit, illegitimate, and requires no respect or submission. Here's a few quotes, and I'm just going to give you these, and I'm going to end. But I want you to to at least see this parallel. The idea is that there is no legitimate authority that is not God-delegated. Now, there is authority. People assume authority themselves all the time. That's what despots and tyranny, uh, warlords and all these people, they must, they assume authority but it isn't delegated by God. Therefore, it's illegitimate. And I'm saying that the fact that only the authority that God has delegated is legitimate is very similar to in our land. The highest law in the land is the Constitution of the United States and anything that would nullify that is to be considered null and void. Here's a a quote or two for you. This is uh, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, This was a Supreme Court ruling. All laws which are repugnant to the Constitution are null and void. That's not hard to understand, is it? This is by this independent public by Rush Dooney. And he says this, it's, referring to the Constitution, its conception of power was Christian. Power is ministerial, not legislative. That means the powers in any area, church, state, school, or family, are not endowed with ability to create laws apart from the higher law, but only to administer fundamental law as man is able to grasp and approximate it. Civil government is thus an administrator rather than a creator of law. It is not sovereign over law, but is under law. The doctrine of express powers, which means the government has only powers expressed in the Constitution. If it's not expressed in the Constitution, they don't have the right. They don't have the power to assert it. That's what this is saying. So he says the doctrine of express powers, those powers expressed in the Constitution, is a strong limitation on even the administrative or mysterial, mysterial role of civil government. Uh, I'll just give you one more, and then I'm going to quit. And uh, this is by Norton versus Shelby County. This is a Supreme Court decision. An unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights, imposes no duties, affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperatives as though it had never been passed. So, we just got a glimpse of the first one, and essentially what we're seeing is that only God, the ultimate authority, delegates authority. You cannot come up with authority on your own. If I decided, um, you know, I think I, I'll i just take take the highest position. I'll take authority over ExxonMobil. And I walked in their offices and I said, I'm here to tell you that I'm your new boss. What would happen? You know, it's silly, isn't it? And yet, I'm, tr- I'm giving you this so you'll understand that God has delegated law. God has delegated authority. And every person that is in authority, I don't care how high their authority goes, is answerable to God. And that includes every person in government. He's delegated law and, and authority to husbands, but it's limited. Same thing in the church. Same Everywhere you go. Is God has delegated. And if you assume authority to yourself, like warlords and tyrants and despots all over the all over the world, you have people that have done that. It is illegitimate, and no one has to submit to it because we submit to the highest authority, which is God, and the delegated authority that He has given. We've just begun to fight, folks, if you want to put it that way. We just maybe I should say. We just begin to be informed. I hope that you will stick with me and give it a full hearing. Now, I'd like everyone, please, to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're dealing with a specific issue here, the relationship of the Christian with the government. However, there's an issue that's far superior to that, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died for the sins of mankind He rose, He was buried, He rose the third day, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. Eternal life is a free gift. You get it by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that at any moment. Right now would be a good time. Realize that you can have a perfect standing before God because you have accepted the free gift of eternal life through believing in Jesus Christ, Or you can choose your own works and try to be be accepted by God by your own works. And that is a fatal mistake because you will wind up the great white throne and you'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. So all you have to do is inaudibly say, I'm believing in Jesus Christ and I'm trusting in Him and His work. And at that moment, you're born again. You become a royal family member of God, and your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Now, Father, thank You for this time You've given us to focus on these things. We need to have a clear, lucid understanding of what our relationship with our own government should be. We want to do what is pleasing in Your sight and what is right. And we must look at this very carefully and see what the Scriptures say, and not what they don't say. So we pray that you will help us to meditate upon these things, for we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.